Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. Longtime listeners for the show might remember that every now and then, I do episodes that I call Al's Bargain Bin Adventures. You know, I haven't done one of those for a while, but the theme of that series is, well, you know, sometimes you go into GameStop or any place that sells used video games, and sometimes you'll find games being sold for as little as 49 cents. So it's like, I figured, well, are these games really bad? Or maybe they're decent games. Maybe there's hidden gems somewhere in there. And maybe the game just didn't get as much of a following and never spawned any sequels or or spin-offs. Well, one of the games I reviewed way back in episode 96 was called El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron. And when I was playing through that game... I mentioned, you know, that one of these days I'm going to have to go back and take another look at the game and maybe discuss some of the religious uh, themes and motifs that we see in that game. Well, it's been a quite a few episodes, so hey, what better time is there than the present? So, let's take a look at El Shaddai Interpreting. Before we begin, I would just like to say that I'm using my religious studies degree to analyze and interpret a video game. I bet my old college professors would be so proud. Now, the plot of the game is inspired by a text called the Book of Enoch, and it does draw upon several themes from that work. The plot of the game is Enoch has to find and bring back the souls of the Grigori. Now, the Grigori are fallen angels that are sometimes also called Watchers. You see, uh, the leader of the Grigori, Semyaza, and his minions stole shards of wisdom from heaven and then set humanity upon a perverted evolution. God is planning to destroy the world with a second great flood. But Enoch is given the opportunity to save mankind. He must bring the souls of the fallen angels back to heaven for judgment. During his journey, he is aided by Lucifer, a wise-cracking angel who talks to God on a cell phone. Lucifer is voiced by Jason Isaacs, who many know as Lucius Malfoy from the Harry Potter movies. He is also joined by four archangels, Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, and Uriel. Now, as far as games go, El Shaddai is neither complex nor exceptionally difficult. It is a third-person combat game with platforming sections. Occasionally, the game switches to a side-scrolling view. For the most part, the combat sections are not too hard and can be overcome with patience and practice. Now, if the game has a fault, it is the third-person platforming sections. There is no camera control at all. 
which makes it a very easy to miss jumps, especially in the later stages. Fortunately, if you miss a jump, Lucifel comes to your rescue and with the snap of his fingers, returns you to solid ground so you can try again. However, you do lose a little bit of health when you miss a jump, so you can't afford to be too careless. And some of these jumps are difficult and take really expert timing. There are times when I was about ready to throw my controller against the wall in frustration after missing a jump five or six times in a row. The other thing that gets annoying about this game is there are times when you will fight one of the three main fallen angels, Azazel, Ezekiel, or Sariel, in a short fight that you are not intended to win. It gets annoying because it kind of breaks up the flow of the game. Now, combat itself is fairly simple. In addition to blocking and evading, Enoch can perform different attacks depending on what type of weapon he is using. Later on in the game, the Archangel Uriel also comes to his aid, and when Enoch has built up a certain level of power, uh, he can call in Uriel for assistance to perform more powerful attacks. Now there's three weapons in the game. The first is the Arch, a curved sword-like weapon that allows Enoch to slow his descent after jumping. This makes it a very useful weapon during the game's platforming sections. The Gale is a disc-like weapon that allows for rapid, long-range attacks. And finally, there is the Veil, which is a shield-like weapon. It is strong and slow, but it does offer the best defensive options and it can destroy some types of obstacles. Now, most of the enemies that Enoch encounters use the same weapons he does. It is important to know when the best time is to use each weapon because they have a rock-paper-scissors relationship. For example, when Enoch is equipped with an arch, he will have an advantage over an enemy using a veil. However, he will be at a disadvantage if he is facing an opponent using a gale. In addition, he can perform counterattacks and break through an enemy's guard by carefully timing his attack. It takes a little practice, but does actually work quite well for how simple it is. Gameplay aside, the thing that really draws you into the game, at least in my opinion, is the stage design. El Shaddai has some of the most creatively designed stages I've ever seen. The backgrounds range from dark, mysterious, and otherworldly to even whimsical. I wanted to keep playing just to see what crazy landscapes the designers had in store for me. The soundtrack is very good as well and the music does set the stage perfectly for each level that you go through. Now to understand the plot of the game, we need to first take a look at Enoch and how he was viewed in the time of the Old Testament. Now probably the most well-known feature 
or character trait of, of Enoch is that he was taken into heaven without dying because he was so righteous, God decided to take him up to heaven. Now, we can learn more about him, though, with looking at sources outside of the Bible. Now, first, we need to take a look at the book of Enoch. It starts with Enoch relating a vision given to him by God of a tribulation that will remove the wicked from the earth. Now, we can draw parallels with the book of Genesis. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And then after that, we start getting into the uh, story of Noah and the ark and the, uh, you know, the, the great flood. Now, the book of Enoch goes into more detail. In the book, the watchers come before their leader, Semyaza, and suggest taking wives from the children of man. Semyaza realizes that he will take the blame for this, and he will be subject to the harshest of punishments. The angels then swear an oath that they will all be held accountable for their actions. In addition to taking wives, the Watchers also taught men charms, enchantments, the cutting of roots, and knowledge of plants. The women that the Watchers mated with gave birth to the Nephilim. These children were described as giants, and when humanity could no longer produce enough food for them, the Nephilim turned to cannibalism. Now the book also describes other skills that the Grigori, or the Watchers, shared with humanity. Semyaza, whose name means the name has been seen, taught mankind enchantments, so I assume to mean magic. Sariel, who is identified as the Metatron, or Scribe of Heaven, taught mankind the lunar calendar. Armoros, the whose name means Cursed One, taught the resolving of enchantments, so possibly this was understood he taught how to undo uh, magic or enchantments cast upon a person or a thing. Ezekiel taught knowledge of the clouds. Azazel taught men how to work with metal as well as how to create weapons and armor. Barakel, his name means lightning of God, taught men astrology. And finally, Arachiel whose name means Earth of God, uh, he was said to have taught geomancy, or divination through the tossing of rock, sand, and dirt. Now the book of uh, Enoch does mention a few other angels and what they taught, but I'm just going to focus on those seven since they are the ones that are actually mentioned in the game. Now at this point in the book, 
the souls of those who have died beg the angels for help. The four archangels, Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel, go before God who gives them instructions. Uriel is instructed to warn Noah of God's plan to flood the world and to build an ark. We can find a parallel with this in the Mesopotamian legend of Atrahasis, where uh, one of the gods, uh, Enki, instructs Atrahasis to build a boat and save lives, and he did so by talking to him in a dream. Next, Raphael is told to bind Azazel in a pit of jagged rocks and covered with darkness. Gabriel advises God to set the Nephilim against each other. And finally, Michael is instructed to bind Semyaza and his associates in the valleys of the earth after they have witnessed their loved ones slay each other. After 70 generations, these rebellious angels are to be led into the abyss of fire where they will be imprisoned forever. After the destruction, the book describes the restoration. After the cleansing, all will be righteous, and God says that he will never again send such a punishment upon the world. Now this is actually a very common theme that we see in eschatology, or end time myths. There's other legends from around the world where the destruction of the old world is necessary to bring about a perfect new world. At this point, Enoch is instructed to tell the Watchers that they have brought a great punishment upon the world and they will never be forgiven. The Watchers beg Enoch to petition God for mercy. As Enoch reads the petition, he falls asleep and has a dream. Enoch was shown the punishments and was told to remand the Watchers. He tells them that their petition will not be granted and what fate awaits them. Enoch is taken upon a journey by the angels where he sees the mysteries and inner workings of the universe. He also sees seven mountains, each one made of a different material. Hmm, where have I heard that motif before? Oh yes, uh, go back and listen to my episodes on the seven heavens and some interesting parallels in there. The second part of the book of Enoch includes various parables about the righteous and the wicked. To be honest, this part of the book does get a little long-winded, and I found myself flipping through it. However, it does mention Azazel again, and how he and his associates will be punished by being bound in the abyss before eventually being cast into Sheol. Despite the fact that Semyaza was the leader of the group, Azazel seems to be fated for the worst punishment. It is implied that his sin was was the most serious, and that was teaching mankind how to make weapons and armor. Perhaps the author of the book believes that learning how to manufacture tools of war completed mankind's fall from innocence. The third part of the book is about Noah, and details more of the secret teachings that the angel bestowed upon Enoch. It lists the names of the fallen angels and their followers. 
we also learn about transgressions of other angels other than the seven that are in the game. Part 4 describes the most well-known of Enoch's traits, that he was taken alive into heaven. He describes being in heaven and seeing a number of angels too great to be counted. He is also shown the paths of movement that the sun, moon, and stars take. Like the second section, this part of the book does get a bit long-winded and rambling. He also spends a year with his son Methuselah, so he may record his visions using different colors and types of animals as symbols. Finally, the fifth part of the book can be described as wisdom teachings as it focuses on warning what will happen to the wicked and also describing what will happen to the righteous. Now on to the game, El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron. The game starts with a cutscene that shows Enoch and Lucifer preparing for the journey ahead. After the obligatory tutorial level, Enoch returns to the Earth and has an encounter with Azazel, who warns Enoch not to interfere with their plans. After a 300-year journey, Enoch finally manages to find the tower constructed by the fallen angels, which was hidden behind a veil. I think it is appropriate that the designers chose to have the angels build a tower. It reminds one of the story of the Tower of Babel. Now in that story, the tower can be seen as symbolic of defiance against God, which is what the Gregori are guilty of. Upon entering the tower, Enoch finds himself in Ezekiel's realm. Here, he meets up with a young girl named Nana and her Nephilim companion. During his journey, Enoch also meets up with the Freemen. These are people who oppose the Grigori and are led by a man named Sin. The leader's name comes from a Mesopotamian moon god, who in some regions was the leader of the Pantheon. Sin also adopted Nana and raised her as his daughter. After defeating Ezekiel's two armored swine, Enoch moves on to Sariel's level. Now I think it's appropriate to show the swine as uh, a boss enemy because in uh, Hebrew traditions, pigs are considered to be unclean animals. Sariel's realm is perhaps one of the most unusual stages in the game. Unlike the otherworldly feel of the previous two levels, this level has a whimsical, light-hearted feel. There are a lot of Nephilim at play in this realm, and if you're not careful, these Nephilim may accidentally knock you into a pit. When Enoch finally reaches Sariel, the fallen angel transforms into a bat, and I do feel this is appropriate because the bat is a nocturnal animal, and Sariel was the angel who taught men the lunar calendar. After the battle, the defeated Sariel sadly bids farewell to his people. Now this is actually quite in line with the Book of Enoch, because it seems that the Grigori 
do have genuine feelings of affection for their followers. The next level is Barakel's realm. As he arrives, Enoch witnesses a Nephilim devour one of its kin and transform into a terrible fire Nephilim. This is also true to the Book of Enoch because, as you may recall, the Nephilim begin to devour one another when mankind could no longer provide enough food for them. After a hard-fought battle, Enoch is devoured by the fire Nephilim. He encounters a spirit known as Methuselah who shows Enoch how to use his full power to destroy the creature. We also find out that Barakel was devoured by the creature. Now the appearance of Methuselah doesn't really make complete sense here because again Methuselah is Enoch's son and not much else is known about him other than that he was said to have lived for over 900 years. However, some traditions say that he does have a sword that could destroy all evil. So, aiding Enoch in destroying the fire Nephilim, that is appropriate and does make sense. In the next level, Enoch finds himself in a vast, high-tech city. Enoch is promptly captured by two robotic creatures who fly him over the city as Azazel proclaims that the people welcome their evolution and he will be uninvited guest in this realm. Now I think that it is appropriate that the game designers chose to have Azazel's realm take the form of an advanced city. Because in addition to teaching mankind how to use weapons and armor and how to make them, he also taught mankind how to work with metal, gemstones, how to use cosmetics, and also revealed the secrets of heaven to them. Now in order to get through this area, Lucifer bestows upon Enoch a motorcycle. So now we go from side-scrolling and third-person combat to... EXTREME MOTORSPORT COMBAT! And no, I have no idea what to make of this section either, but the stage is actually a lot of fun to play through. After completing this stage and exiting Azazel's technological utopia, Enoch finds himself underwater. I think this stage can be symbolic of the Abyss. Now, as you may recall from my episode about the Abyss in Dungeons & Dragons Manual of the Plains, I mentioned that the Hebrew word for the Abyss in the Old Testament is Tehom and it is understood to be the water deep below the earth. Enoch and Lucifer also see Amaras's Nephilim, which looks like a giant squid. Now as far as Amaras goes, not much is said about him in the book of Enoch, and I really couldn't find much about him other than his name meaning Cursed One, which we'll see as the game progresses, is unfortunately 
very true. Lucifel implies that Armoros considered Enoch a friend. And honestly, the game really doesn't make him out to seem that evil. When Enoch finally reaches Armoros, he appears in a stadium surrounded by his followers, and he makes an entrance worthy of a rock star. And again, this is why I said that he doesn't really seem that evil, and he does seem to have a sense of charm and charisma about him. As Enoch fights off Armoros' followers, the fallen angel simply dances in the middle of the screen. And this has got to be one of the most unusual boss fights I've ever seen. But eventually, uh, Armoros does confront Enoch directly. At the end of the battle, though, after Armoros is defeated, things take a turn for the worse. A dark cloud appears out of nowhere and swallows Nana. Enoch charges in to save her. After Enoch and the girl are swallowed, Lucifer convinces Armoros to enter the darkness and save Enoch. Now I think that this stage is likely supposed to be understood to be Sheol, the Hebrew underworld. Now, ancient Judaism didn't really have a clear conception of the afterlife. It was believed that after death, all souls went to Sheol regardless of their deeds in life. It was described as a place of darkness and stillness. Now, the uh, realm as pictured in Al Shaddai here is definitely anything but dark and still, and it has some very annoying and very frustrating platform sections. But as Armoros fights his way through the darkness, he finds Nana. A being made of light approaches the girl's body, places her hand on her, and then merges with Nana's body. Lucifer promises to take care of her as Armoros continues his journey. Upon reaching Enoch, Armoros discovers that our hero has succumbed to the power of darkness. After Armoros defeats Enoch, the darkness appears again. Lucifer takes Enoch to safety while Armoros is engulfed by dark energy. You really have to feel kind of sorry for Armoros because during the descent, uh, there's several points where you can overhear Lucifer talking to God, and Lucifer even makes the comment that Armoros's feelings seem to be the real deal, and that there may be hope for him. Now, the nature of this darkness is not really explained, but it is probably Belial. Before Armoros reaches Enoch, one of the angels mentions that he wonders if Prince Belial is sleeping. In the Bible, Belial is used to describe people not looked upon kindly by the Hebrews. The name Belial is usually translated to something along the lines of worthless. The Dead Sea Scrolls give us more information on Belial, 
placing him as a leader of the Sons of Darkness. One of the scrolls, appropriately named the War of the Sons of Light against the Sons of Darkness, describes Belial as follows. You made Belial for the pit, angel of enmity. In darkness is his domain. His counsel is to bring about wickedness and guilt. All the spirits of his lot are angels of destruction. They walk in the laws of darkness. Towards it goes their only desire. So to place Belial in the pit of darkness, very fitting. Now, if we're going to draw upon Joseph Campbell's theory of the monomyth from his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, we can see Enoch and Armoras' fight as an example of something called the brother battle. While Armoras and Enoch are not biological brothers, it is implied that they are familiar with each other. And that is one of the things that can be challenging about the brother battle in the monomyth, is it forces the hero to fight against someone that he knows intimately, even if it's not his own brother. Back on Earth, Enoch is encased in a block of ice or, or crystal. It's not really specified which. Nana stays with him, and Lucifer suggests she might try praying to help him recover. Meanwhile, Enoch's soul is forced to go through a purification process as he must overcome his inner conflicts. While the biblical Enoch doesn't seem to have to deal with such conflicts, I think it works if we choose to view El Shaddai in the context of the heroic journey. We can see this as an example of the hero needing outside assistance, as it is possible that Enoch may have needed to have this help from Nana, as Lucifer suggested that her prayers may have helped him recover. Another significant part in this game, which again uh, fits very well in the context of the monomyth of the heroic initiation, Sometimes the hero doesn't want to return to the world. He wants to stay where he's at, and he may need convincing or assistance to get back on the road to adventure. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the armies of the fallen angels have grown stronger. And apparently some time passes here as uh, Lucifer mentions that it took Enoch ten years to finally recover. Nana discovers Sin's mask and transforms into the warrior Ishtar. As Enoch returns to the fight, Ishtar goes toe-to-toe -to -toe against Ezekiel. Now to draw upon the hero's journey again, I think we can interpret Ezekiel as an example of an ogre mother which is a destructive feminine force that the hero must confront. And one of the reasons I think this is appropriate is because of a dialogue that occurs between Ishtar and Ezekiel as they fight.
deceived a child. I understand the love of a mother for her child. More than you ever can. You hypocrite! What about your own children? At this very moment! They devour each other in their unbearable agony! I love them as well. You love them. You use the word as an excuse for your actions. Your fanaticism blinds you. It is also worth looking at Nana and her transformation into Ishtar. Nana is actually the name of a Sumerian moon god who was also known as Sin. And you may recall that Sin was also a leader of the free men and Nana's adopted father. Now I think the game developers, maybe they got some names mixed up here because there is a Mesopotamian goddess with a similar name called Inanna. So again, the name very similar to Nana, just one letter off. In mythology, Sin was Inanna's father. Inanna was worshipped by the Babylonians under the name Ishtar. No matter what name she was called though, this goddess was seen as a goddess of both love and war. So having Ishtar evolve into a warrior is in line with the mythology behind her. Ishtar also has a connection to the underworld. In the game, Ishtar was defeated by the Nephilim and her bones were scattered in the darkness. Her spirit remains uncorrupted though. And she is the one who, just, who entered into Nana's body so that she could awaken and become this warrior when the time was right. Now in mythology, Ishtar visits her sister Ereshkigal in the underworld. While there, she must pass through several gates. And with each gate she passes through, Ishtar is forced to remove one of her garments or one of her objects of power. When she finally comes before her sister, Ishtar is killed and hung on a hook. Eventually, though, she was rescued by her servant, Ninshubur. As Enoch fights his way through this level, we learn that Arachiel has been slain, though we're never told who killed him or how he died. Enoch finally confronts Ezekiel again, and during their battle, Ezekiel mutates into some sort of strange, weird, slug-like thing. Upon her death, she laments for her beloved children, again, keeping with the theme that the Grigori 
do have genuine feelings of affection for humans. As Enoch reaches the final level, he encounters Azazel. After Enoch defeats Azazel's first form, he transforms into a locust. And I think that this is an appropriate form for him to take because locusts were long regarded as pests in the ancient world. For example, we know from the uh, book of Exodus that uh, locusts were one of the plagues of Egypt. Locusts were also associated with the demon Panzuzu. Now I'd also like to note how different Azazel's personality is from that of Ezekiel and Sariel. Their motivations and their uh, attitudes are actually quite opposed to each other. Now the other two angels speak of their fondness for humanity. Sariel appears as a young man and often speaks of humanity with the fondness one would use to speak of a lover. Ezekiel appears as an older woman and takes a much more maternal approach. She refers to her followers as her children. Azazel appears as an older man and he expresses his feelings towards humanity with less emotional attachment. It is almost like he sees mankind as a science project and we are all basically just his guinea pigs or test subjects. He speaks of accelerating human evolution to unlock humanity's potential. And this is revealed in a dialogue that Azazel has earlier in the stage. The pain we suffered upon our descent is beyond your imagining. Several of our number did not survive it. I think this dialogue perfectly sums up the attitude a fallen angel would take, basically saying that he thinks he can do better than God and he can defy God and um, outdo God's creation. After the battle, Azazel starts to transform into what he calls his ultimate evolution because the fallen angel form is apparently too weak for him. Before Azazel, though, can display his new power, a great beast springs from the ground and destroys him. We then learn that this beast 
is actually Armoros, corrupted by the darkness. Enoch, with help from Ishtar, defeats Armoros. And as he dies, Amaras says thank you to Enoch. Enoch and Ishtar then approach an inverted pyramid, which is described as Semyaza's life support system. Ishtar opens the device and finds nothing, and we learn that Semyaza has actually been dead the whole time. The tower is destroyed, the second flood is averted, and the archangels declare that they will watch over humanity for all eternity. After the credits, we see a brief shot of Armoros's Nephilim swimming in the waters of the abyss. Now this could be interpreted as Leviathan, which does appear in the Book of Enoch as a female sea monster. Although popularly depicted as a serpent or a crocodile, the name Leviathan could also have been used to describe other large sea creatures as well, such as whales and possibly even squid. Leviathan also appears in a related book called the Book of Giants. In this book, though, God actually sends Leviathan to fight the giants though the creature is eventually destroyed. So there you have it. A look at the game El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron, and some of the religious themes and motifs that we see within the game. So a lot of this is really just my personal interpretations. I mean, it is possible that the game designers themselves may have actually had uh, their own ideas in mind when they were writing the story for the game. So if you liked listening to the podcast of this episode, and maybe if you want to see the some of the gameplay footage, I do have a video of this episode that will be available on the Point of Insanity Game Studios YouTube channel. So go ahead and check that out if you have the chance. So I'd like to thank you for listening, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.com. 